a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Whether you are a longtime wrong thinker or this is your first foray into the uncharted waters of wrong think, I do appreciate you tuning in. The idea behind this show is not that uh, you tune in and you hang in, you hang on every word that comes out of my mouth and I tell you what to think. Because frankly, I'm just not that smart. I don't, uh, I don't have the answers, but I'm a guy who's pretty serious about wanting to know the truth. I would consider myself a truth seeker. And, and here's, here's the evidence I would offer. This is meager evidence, I know, but uh, I'm willing to be uncomfortable. I'm willing to move out of the comfort zone. I'm willing to hear and consider ideas that, that make me feel like, oh, man, I'm hitting the limits. I'm, I'm bumping up against the boundaries of my mental universe. And sometimes, you know, it's it, sometimes I encounter things that, uh, you know, I, I'm, I just simply don't feel they pass the, the sniff test, okay? It, it doesn't quite add up to truth. But often you will find that it's outside of those comfortable lies, the things that sound soft to your ears, that's where you finally start to get an, an idea of what's really happening, what, what is really taking place around you. And more importantly, this is, this is the key. It's not just, you know, well, I know everything that's going on. It's a matter of I want to have a clear sense of what's happening, how the world is, but I also want to have a very clear sense of what I can do to make things better. And this is where we tend to terribly underestimate ourselves, but uh, I know there are people out there who hear that call. They feel it in their bones. There's something more that I could be doing. And if you are one of those people, you have found the right place, even though I'm going to guarantee you'll probably hear things you won't, won't necessarily agree with. I'm not looking to put information out there to find the most agreeable audience in history. You know, everybody who tunes in is just going to be nodding their heads thoughtfully and going, wow, what a great guy that Brian Hyde is. He is just so smart. Nope. Nope. I'm here to, to simply share information. What you do with it, that's up to you. But I do spend my days and my nights looking for the best information I can find. And I try to cover a number of topics beyond just, you know, here's what's happening in Washington, D.C., because truth be told, much of the most important stuff that's taking place in your world really has nothing to do with politics. So let's dive right in. I've got a couple of different things to, to touch on today. We're going to talk about rules for rational parenting that were actually derived from good economics. We'll talk about the dangers of licensing and how to get what you want. That's a fun one. That also is based in, in good economics. But I'm going to start with something here. That uh, And this is right off the bat. I know some people are going to slam their minds shut because what I'm going to share with you is something that I read recently from Ammon Bundy. Yes, that Ammon Bundy. Now, Ammon, I, for, for whatever perception people may have of him, if you see him as a hero or if you see him as a troublemaker, this much I think we could, we could mostly all agree on. This is a guy who is absolutely dedicated to trying to stand up for liberty not just his own, but other people's as well, in all circumstances. Now, how he does that can be a matter of controversy. Personally, I've, I have been friends with the guy for, for a while, and I really believe he, he is one of the, the best 
examples of what it means to have skin in the game and be willing to suffer to stand up for something that he believes in. And quite frankly, I'm, I'm astonished at the, the odds that he has overcome you know, to remain a free man because he has gone up against some of the most powerful players in the world, including the federal government of the United States, including his own state government and various functionaries at various levels. And he has never lost sight of, of why he makes the stand that he does. He's not a violent guy. He's not, he's not a, a radical, although he's often portrayed as such. He's just one of those very rare individuals who actually believes in freedom strong enough that he'd, he's willing to sit in jail if that's what it takes to, to stand up for, again, not just his rights, but other people's rights as well. And because of that, some people, well, that's, that's the sign of a troublemaker. But I'm telling you, more and more, the time we, times we live in, that's how you can tell the people who are actually serious about their freedom versus those who aren't. And I'll paraphrase Alexander Solzhenitsyn. I believe, I believe his quote was something along the lines of, to stand for truth is nothing. For truth, you must sit in jail. So along the way, Ammon has encountered a lot of people who likewise are very, very committed to standing up for liberty. And he, he recently sent out this, uh, this essay that says there is no silver bullet to securing liberty. He talks about since the Bundy Ranch incident back in 2014, he says, I've met countless people that have expressed to me what they believe the solution to securing liberty is. Now, he says, on most occasions, I try to learn from them and give them the time to explain the details of their findings and conclusions. And it's always fascinating to understand what they're expressing. Most of these people are very intelligent and have spent decades researching and documenting what they believe to be the solution to liberty. He says they anxiously want me to listen and champion their cause to rally the people to implement their plan and take back the rights that have been lost. However, he says, after ample time is given to understand the basics of their solutions and plans, I always ask them one question, a question that none of them has been able to answer. And each time I ask this question, the reply is always, I don't know. So this question has never failed to deteriorate the possibility of success for every proposal he has heard. Now, from here, he walks through. This is, this is the situation his family was facing, the, the history behind why did his father stand up and, and fire the BLM and choose to manage his own range allotment when it came to ranching. It's an interesting story, and it's, it's one that I would encourage you. To, to at least consider his side. The government side is, well, we made a rule and he didn't follow it. And as if any rule we make is the right thing, is the moral thing. And you're duty bound to do it. But the point here is that no matter how much they tried to work within the system, seek redress, seek it in the courts, you know, to, to do everything they could within the system to, to protect their livelihood, the system still just ran roughshod over them as well as all of the other all the other neighbors. Out of fifty some ranchers in that particular corner of the world, south uh, east uh, Nevada, they they were one of the last families standing. And ultimately, if you're familiar with what happened in Bunkerville, Nevada, back in 2014, the the government, the federal government, sent a 200 man militarized task force to try to provoke the Bundys into using violence. 
And the question that that Ammon asks people when they come up to him and they say, look, you know, whether it's uh, whatever, whatever their silver bullet is, you know, whether it's common law court, whether it's a convention of the states, whether it's a grand jury or becoming a state nationalist, the only thing that works to stop tyranny in its tracks is when people come together in defense of their neighbor's rights. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean come together with guns, but it just means when people come together and stand up for their neighbors, government has to reconsider. So the question he asks people that want him to buy in on whatever they believe the silver bullet is to securing liberty is, who is going to enforce it? Who's going to enforce the ruling of a grand jury? Who's going to enforce the results of a convention of states? Who will enforce the verdict of a common law court? Who's going to enforce the clearing of title on a patent for your land? And if you have no way to enforce liberty, then you have none. His point is the people in this country have lost the balance of power they once had. Prior to the last few generations, the American people had maintained a unity and a regard for individual rights that the people in government actually feared and respected. Bureaucrats understood they could only get away with so much or the people would forcefully put them in order. Today, that balance of power is nearly non-existent, which puts we the people in a very precarious position. His point is simply this. If we really want to secure liberty, what we need to do is unite as a body of people determined to defend each other when our rights are threatened. All we need to do to balance the power that's been usurped by the bureaucrats. That's it. Just, but come together in defense of one another. Patrick Henry said, give me liberty or give me death. He understood that unless you're willing, you're, until you're willing to give your life for liberty, you can't be free. He also knew if the people didn't balance the power of government, then they would lose all ability to secure their own lives and to control their own lives. So the point here is there is no silver bullet to securing liberty. What it's going to take is unity, the willingness to suffer, and the willingness in some cases, to actually step up and use violence in defense. Now, again, I know that's going to strike some people as terribly radical, but you know the 4th of July? You know the Independence Day that we celebrate each year and when we you know, kind of wax philosophic about how wonderful freedom is and thank goodness for all those people who are willing to pay the price? That's what he's talking about. It takes effort to maintain your freedom. If you want to maintain your freedom, you got to be willing to stand up. And if you're willing to stand up for others and defend their freedoms, yes, you deserve freedom as well. But you got to know what you're standing up for. We'll take a quick break and be right back. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Assuming I haven't scared you off with the uh, content in that first segment, but I'll tell you, that's, uh, that is a hard truth that uh, Ammon Bundy spells out. And, and yet, I think it's, it's absolutely the truth. I believe that he's on to something here. So, let's move on. We've got some other stuff to talk about. Uh, let's, let's take a moment here. To, uh, to delve into, let's talk about how to get what you want. Now, I think most of us would, would agree that, you know, when it comes to, to getting what you want, you have a couple of ways to do this. I've always heard it broken down to when you're interacting with other people, you can either persuade them 
or you can force them. And there were a lot of people who just kind of immediately go to force. Well, let me get the police involved or let me uh, get the state involved. There ought to be a law. That's, that's using force. I like how Art Carden with the American Institute for Economic Research puts it. When he talks about four ways that you can get what you want, this is pretty eye-opening. He asks, how can you get what you want? Years ago, Clarence Carson pointed out that fundamentally there are four ways. And Art Carden says, Paul Cleveland and I explored this in a 2010 article in The Freeman. But he says they're worth revisiting. So you can make something for yourself. You can give it to, or someone can give it to you rather as a gift. You could steal it or you can trade for it. Now, doing it yourself is fun sometimes, but unless you're doing it rec- recreationally, do it yourself is the road to poverty and starvation. In fact, Adam Smith put it this way. It is the maximum of every maxim of every prudent master of a family never to attempt to make at home what it will cost him more to make than to buy. What is prudence in the conduct of every private family can scarce be folly in that of a great kingdom. End quote. So, cutting ourselves off from the rest of the world is a recipe for economic, cultural, and social stagnation. We're paying too much for washing machines because of tariffs. That's money we're not able to use for something else. Furthermore, culture and cuisine flourish where immigrants dwell. The more isolated and less cosmopolitan an area, the less dynamic it is. Now, they are exciting places to visit. They might have fascinating folkways. But when the option presents itself, people tend to move toward people and prosperity. So, next, you can get what you want or need as a gift. Art Carden says gift-giving rituals are rich with social meaning. And as Anthony Gill and Michael D. Thomas argue, they are dynamically efficient, even though they are statically inefficient. Receiving gifts has its limits, though, because it's easy to get neurotic about what you can enjoy if you're supposed to give everything away all the time. There are also fundamental knowledge problems. Everyone has stories about bad gifts they've received. If the people who know us best and care about us most aren't very good at getting us what we need or want, how much worse are we at deciding what strangers need and want? That's a good point. All right, third, if you don't do it yourself or receive it as a gift, you could steal it. Or if you don't like the language of theft, you can elect someone to take it from someone else and give it to you. See how that works? A community of thieves, however, is not likely to last long unless, as Adam Smith explains, they at least have a rule everyone observes of not robbing each other. It's easy to get people to object to naked theft because that's easy to see and imagine. You can enter into sympathy with a victim handing his wallet to a guy putting a gun in his face. Taxation and redistribution make the act a little less evident by dressing it in the language of virtue and justice and calling the robbers in suits and ties or dressing the robbers in suits and ties rather and giving them fancy titles with organizations like the Internal Revenue Service. After all, revenue is good. And who doesn't like service, especially service with a smile? Well, and a sidearm, apparently. He says, the beggar thy neighbor policy is another route to poverty because people don't have incentives to produce when they know it's just going to be taken by someone else who will dispose of it on their behalf. Incentives will reward predation and protection, trying to take other stuff and keep others from taking your stuff instead of production. It's the stuff of life in a war of each against all that is predictably solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short, just like Hobbes described. 
So he says, consider tariffs again. If we know anything in economics, we know taxing trade routes is bad. It impoverishes most people in order to serve special interests. The bargaining between interest groups that can deliver votes and politicians who can deliver policy consumes income and wealth on net. Politicians are trading what's in consumers' wallets without giving them an offsetting benefit. All right, finally, the fourth way to get what you want is to trade for it. In an excellent parody video, Remy sends up the song Havana and makes a case for free trade singing, free trade's like a magic wand, turns what you make best into what you want. We get more goods and services at lower prices when we can trade. Trade produces the cornucopia. Incentives to trade turn people's regard for their own interests into regard for others' interests. Because the way to get people to work for you in a commercial society is to give them something they want at prices they're willing to pay. You get rich by making it easier for others to get what they want by buying it from you. Now, Art Carden points out, for most of our existence, life was solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short for pretty much everybody. Then we became a society of traders rather than a society of raiders. Raiding, of course, still happened. However, it became less and less frequent as a share of the human experience. And more and more, of a, and more, and more honor and riches accrued to merchants and innovators. In other words, we embraced integration rather than isolation. We began to tolerate the honorable pursuit of one's own interests. We stopped stealing as much and started producing and trading more. We became makers rather than takers. And at the end of the day, we all got richer. I think I like this on a number of different levels because he is talking about the importance of, of commerce, which unfortunately, you know, has, in some people's minds translates into, well, if it's commerce, then, you know, somebody's got to be regulating it or somehow it's out of control. I prefer the phrase, the free market, because the free market really, you, you don't get to succeed. You don't get to accrue wealth unless you're actually creating value for other people. And the market is what decides. If your product or your service is substandard, people will take their business elsewhere because you can't force people to do business with you. That's a, that's a huge difference. I mean, how many places would you go to shop if, uh, say, you were going to go buy a shirt and you walked in, you looked around, and you said, well, I really don't see anything here that I like. And you turn to go out the door, but uh, no, a store employee stops you with a gun on their hip and says, you're going to buy something here today. In fact, you're going to buy that uh, puce shirt with purple polka dots and, and you're going to walk out of here wearing it. And they're patting the gun on their hip. You will do this. You don't have a choice. See, that's, that's how the state operates. But in the free market, you're free to walk out that door and walk, you know, down the street to find another merchant who sells exactly what you want, which we all know is the big pirate puffy shirt that uh, Jerry Seinfeld made popular just, you know, a few, few years back. But nonetheless, having that choice, it makes all the difference in the world. And I say this with the understanding, we don't really have what, uh, what I would call a true free market, although we have many elements of the free market. There's still a lot of what I would consider unnecessary regulation and interference with that market. But still, the free market finds a way. 
I'm a big fan of uh, the concept of agorism. If you haven't heard of that, that's, uh, I think, best described as simply reducing your government footprint. And it's the kind of free market where, um, let's say, a neighbor keeps bees and harvests honey. And maybe they trade with you. You're a... you or maybe your spouse is an accomplished, uh, you know, hairstylist. So, hey, in return for this much honey on a regular basis, you know, you take care of uh, cutting hair or styling hair for them. It's kind of an awkward example, but uh, you get the picture. Some would call it the black market. My my point is simply that uh, people who have something that other people need and that they're willing to trade for, they can always find a way to get their needs met. And I have a hunch that uh, probably in the not-too-distant future, this is going to become a fairly favored way of exchange. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. Thanks again for uh, for giving this program a chance. And I'm going to extend an invitation to you. If uh, if you find value in the message that I'm sharing or the information that I'm passing along, please consider subscribing to my show notes. It's, it's nothing magical. It's not going to give you all the answers to the world. But it will give you the links to the various authors and the various uh, people that I interview on this program. So you can follow up for yourself. If this is really about, you know, a never-ending quest for clarity... This is uh, one of the ways that I can contribute and provide resources for wrong thinkers like you and me. So it's shocking sometimes how far people will go in order to avoid an acknowledging an unpleasant truth. I think we probably have seen this more with, you know, the mask mandates and just, just some of the COVID panic that remains even after three years. Things have calmed down. Things look pretty normal for most people right now. But every so often, you'll still find a few people who are very vehement. I think I I just saw a tweet today, uh, some story about uh, how Hollywood celebrities are vowing that they're going to go on strike until every last person on earth has received the vaccine. And I'm like, all right, well, good luck, you guys. I don't uh, I don't watch that much television or those that many movies anyway. So, you know, it's uh, you're you're not really going to hurt me. But I guess the the point here is. They will not acknowledge an unpleasant truth. And the unpleasant truth is all the lockdowns, all the mandates didn't do a thing to mitigate the spread of the COVID virus. It did exactly what other viruses have done before it, regardless of whatever words were on a piece of paper written by a politician or whatever. And then eventually enough people got it that, uh, you know, herd immunity began to kick in. But I got a great article here from Todd Hayen. This is from uh, the offguardian.org website. And it's called Fear of Inconvenience. And Todd says, everyone is asking the question, why can't people see the obvious? Why can't people believe what's going on and stand up and do something about it? And you hear a lot of different responses and possibilities in response, from mass psychosis to 5G affecting the brain to totalitarian brainwashing to raw fear of death and illness to the loss of critical thinking skills. Now, Todd says all or most of these things may certainly be in place, but this is possibly not a one-reason answer to the question. For instance, he says, I, for one, have seen people utterly terrified of the virus, as well as people not at all afraid of the disease, but with no interest in going against authority in a stable and structured culture, so they think. 
He says, I've seen people who have no clue there's any resistance to the mandates. And if there is, it's coming from hillbillies living out of touch with reality. In fact, even the New World Google definition of psychosis includes an example. Psychotic people may be worried that the government is trying to harm them and their loved ones. <laughs> Thanks, Google. Todd says, that includes you and me, folks. Welcome to the loony bin. He says, I saw a post from a longtime Facebook friend the other day that said, well, it finally got me. After three years of staying indoors and away from people, two COVID vaccines and three boosters, I finally got COVID. It is horrible. I can't stop coughing. I have a fever. And every time I swallow, I feel like I'm swallowing glass. And of course, the post was followed with dozens of sympathetic responses. I got it too. Hang in there. (laughs) Prayers for you. Five shots later, I have the same thing and on and on and on. And Todd asks, what is it with these people? Have they really not heard at least a rumor that the vaccines might be unsafe or might not be effective? Really? He says, I sincerely can't answer that question. Maybe they really haven't heard even a rumor of truth, which opens up a whole new discussion. And then even if they have heard something, why hasn't it at least gotten them curious or cautious even a little bit? He says, you would think that if this person were proudly proclaiming their misfortune and getting whacked with the bug after being so careful to do everything to avoid it, they would put two and two together and not be so proud of their ineffable stupidity. In fact, he says, I almost posted my flippant response. Well, thank God you got all those shots. But he says, I refrained because I knew the irony of my comment would be lost, eliciting the reply, I know, I'd probably be dead if I hadn't. They can always say that. Ignoring completely that everyone on that side of the hill from day one said, you will not get COVID if you take these shots. Oh, that's okay. They said that. They, they just didn't know. You know, they, they didn't know everything about the shots. They just had to move so fast to save humanity. So say the little lambs. Todd Hayen says, how come if they readily make that as an excuse when it comes to efficacy, why can't they present that same explanation regarding the purported safety of the vaccine? Oh, I know, thousands are dying, but you know, they didn't know everything about the shots at first. Blah, 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 selective logic. So maybe it's because they haven't died or been horribly compromised other than the, than the not-so-bad glass shards in their throat and suffering a 104 temperature for a week. At least I'm not dead. He says, I wonder if when they actually do die from the vaccine-induced failure of their immune system, they will say right before their last breath, well, at least I didn't die of covid Dying from the vaccine is just the price we have to pay to keep from dying of this wicked virus. He says, I met a guy the other day who told me he contracted Bell's palsy right after taking the fourth jab. And he treated it like you would a sore arm after a shot. Oh, that's nothing, really. Really? Well, at least I didn't die. And why would that be an acceptable possibility after taking a vaccine for something like COVID? That would probably be less invasive than Bell's palsy. Weird logic reasoning, what weird logic reasoning, he says, spooky science. More than likely, these people are embarrassed to admit that their delusions were totally ludicrous and irrational. They have to make up some reason for their actions. Oh, I drank that glass of arsenic that burned out my stomach lining and put me on my deathbed, only a few more hours to live, because I had some parasites in my stomach, and those bastards are dead for sure, but at least I didn't die from that. Now, he says, although this may be a possibility, it would have to be an unconscious realization, and it would have to be dependent on the supposition that at least their unconscious was aware of the truth. 
I never get the impression that people's egos are so big that they have to consciously make up a story to save face. It may come to that for some people. But Todd says, right now, I don't think the realization that they are fools is conscious. People are always making up stuff to rationalize their irrationality in making stupid decisions. Many people make up stuff to keep themselves from looking stupid or feeling stupid. The key here is that these rationalizations are compelled unconsciously. Otherwise, we, those of us who do this, would be liars. And most people are not chronic liars. He says, I might be an unconscious liar at times, but I don't think I'm too often a conscious one. As for this COVID stuff, the unconscious reason to make up stories that fit our actions could largely be to avoid an inconvenience. Most people who do this are probably mortified unconsciously at the moment that they've done something so preposterously stupid as to allow an injection into their body for no good reason. And honestly, he says there never was a good reason. I do think when the truth really hits, the mainstream will get angry and blame everyone who is lying to them. Maybe not. But if they do, this will be horribly inconvenient. And then they're going to have to scream and yell at everyone responsible. Politicians, doctors, friends, family, etc. That's a lot of work and a lot of energy. Since this awareness is not wholly conscious yet, why not just go along with it, meaning the illusion? Except some inconveniences like a bad case of something causing symptoms, what they might conveniently call COVID or the flu or whatever else it might be. Another inconvenient truth they would have to accept is that all of us anti-vaxxers were right and all their sheep friend were wrong. Now that's very inconvenient. Todd Hayen says their whole world will come crashing down and that is the most inconvenient event imaginable. Much easier to just continue to play along until there's no choice but to accept the truth, which is for the most part pretty dark and, of course, quite inconvenient. That's pretty powerful stuff. Todd, by the way, is a registered psychotherapist practicing in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. And I love the work he does and the writing he does for OffGuardian.org. This is one of my favorite sources for, you know, another point of view, a second opinion, if you will. So if you're looking for, you know, something that's a little more thought-provoking, might actually challenge you a bit, off-guardian.org. Look, I, don't, I, I hope this doesn't come off as, yeah, you know, we need to rub people's noses in it and tell them you were wrong and so forth. I did see, so, which, which I thought was maybe a parody headline, but it said something along the lines of, you know, the, the vaccines are not working. Why didn't you unvax tell us? Why didn't you warn us? It's your fault that, you know, that, that uh, now people are suffering, you know, these vaccine injuries and things like that. And, and my first thought was, okay, this sounds like something maybe the Babylon Bee would, would write up. But no, I think it was a legit, serious headline. You know, it's your fault. You unvaxxed. Why didn't you warn us? Why didn't you do more? Why didn't you say more? And, and my first response is just, you know, incredulity. Like, really? You, you want to go there? And maybe even a little tinge of anger when I think about all the people who actually put it on the line, lost their jobs, were stripped of professional licensing, were marginalized, shouted down, canceled, denied entry into stores, denied the ability to be with loved ones or to travel. No, this isn't the time for vengeance, but uh, it it is pretty gutsy. 
to, to try to make that claim. It's your fault. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And we are back. All right, let's delve into uh, rational parenting. That sounds too technical. That sounds like something somebody in a lab coat ought to be doing. I'll tell you this. I, I'm a, I, well, I'm on the tail end of my parenting. Most of my kids have grown up and moved out. I've got six kids. Two of them remain at home. They uh, hopefully are getting a better experience of, of my parenting than my earlier kids did. All my mistakes were made on my earlier kids. And yet I, I have to say... I wanted to be a good parent. I've tried to be a good parent, but I also know I've failed miserably in, in many cases. But, uh, you know, you just, you never forget that sense of responsibility that just settles on you at the arrival of your first child. It is really like, whoa, I can't quit this job. And you can't. It's Parenting is the one job you truly can never walk away from. So I think most of us really strive to be good parents. Sometimes, though, there are a lot of different schools of thought that, you know, do you let the baby cry? Do you pick the baby up and so forth? I don't have the answers there, but I want to share with you an article that uh, was published by the Foundation for Economic Education, Three Rules of Rational Parenting Derived from Good Economics. This is Peter Jacobson who writes this, and he says, As an economist, one of the most common questions I get is inquiries on which stocks to buy. And he's explained before in articles, economics doesn't really equip him with the answer to this question. However, economics has provided him with good rules to aid in parenting, believe it or not. Now, there's a good chance that parents will hear or discover these rules on their own, but the underlying logic for why they're good is based on a sound understanding of economics. So after five years of parenting and three years of being a professor, he says, I want to present to you three rules of rational parenting. The first one, rule one, cave never or cave forever. This is going to ring a bell for a few folks. One common struggle of being a parent of young kids is the possibility of tantrums. Kids frequently throw tantrums publicly when they don't get what they want. Your response to tantrums needs to be strategic. So anytime you encounter a situation where your best decision depends upon the actions of another person, we can think of that interaction as a game. Now, something being a game doesn't imply there's a loser or a winner. It just means that your best action is dependent on the action of someone else. So this is where the, uh, these kind of interactions <clears throat> are analyzed by economists with the tools of game theory. So he creates what he calls the tantrum game. In the tantrum game, the child makes a decision whether to throw a tantrum, and the parents, in return, are given the opportunity to respond. Now, you've probably seen this, you know, uh, play out. I see this with my own kids. If they throw a big enough fit, am I eventually going to give in? I, I got to admit, I'm the hard nose. My wife will often give in. Oh, okay, she'll relent and let him do it. I won't, simply because I, I've seen, you know, if, if you if you set that boundary. Once you start moving the, the boundary, um, they know, the kid knows at that point, if I just persist long enough, I can, I can force a change. So the rule is not simply to never cave to demand. Sometimes it's okay to give the kids what they want if you think it's reasonable. But you should be prepared for them to expect you to always cave on a particular demand if you start to cave on that demand. If Once you have shown that, yep, I'm willing to cave, 
Don't be surprised when they start exploiting that. Rule number two, don't make false threats. If you, if you say there are going to be consequences for not mowing the lawn, you need to make sure that they uh, actually have to observe those consequences. Now, this doesn't sound like rocket science, right? But the idea is, if you're just, once they realize that you're bluffing, well, young man, there's going to be consequences, severe consequences if you don't clean your room or whatever. They just have to know how far they can push you. So, you know, basically what it's, if you're going to say, this is what's going to happen, you need to do it. But keep a cool head. Offer reasonable consequences that you know you will enforce. Otherwise, Peter Jacobson says your kids shouldn't believe you. Okay, rule number three, be transparent. Kids should understand they do have choices, and that's true, whether you want them to have choices or not, but their choices do have consequences. He says, I don't have a rule for which particular consequence you have if your children, for example, hit each other. I'm not a parenting savant. But he says, I can tell you that the consequences you establish need to be clear. Without clear payoffs or consequences, consequences rather, players in a game can't make the best decisions. Can you imagine how frustrating basketball would be if your points per basket were totally random? Would you ever try from three-point distance if you might end up with just one point? It's a good point. So to keep things from being arbitrary, the consequences from being a mystery that just, you know, it's, it's going to be different every time, that's not going to help you or your child figure out the best option. It's a pretty powerful article. He's got some pretty cool charts and graphs in there as well. You can access it by going to my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Again, that's Peter Jacobson from the Foundation for Economic Education. One final note, this is uh, an article I picked up this morning from Eric uh, Peters, from Eric Peters Autos. Eric has kicked off his Substack, and I'm loving it, getting regular updates from the guy. This one is on the dangers of licensing. And, and this is, my friend Tyler actually sent me you know, a, a, a screenshot of some, some licensing requirements that he was going through the other day and just saying, this is just straight up, you know, hey, if you just pay us money, we'll tell you it's okay to do this. Which is really, that's the essence of licensing right there. Under licensing, government takes away from you the right to do something, or at least they prohibit you from doing it without their permission. But when you pay them money, yes, they will gladly sell it back to you. Now, the bigger question is, does it, uh, does it actually work? Eric Peters, for instance, says many people think that licensing professions, like medicine, for instance, that's a sound idea because it reduces quackery. Well, uh, so much for that, if you've been paying attention for the last few years. He says, consider the contrary alternative as applied to the practice of another profession, that of journalism. Anyone is free to write without having to beg the state or a state-enforced guild of some kind, that's you, American Medical Association, for permission to do so. Permission that's conditional, permission that can be rescinded, and for uh, more than what's styled malpractice as regards the practice of medicine, the latter having become synonymous with obedience. So, for instance, he gives the example. The state of California has, uh, along with the medical guild, been holding this sword of Damocles over the heads of, poly- of uh, physicians rather in California via the threat of taking away their permission to practice. 
They've been trying to do that to any doctor who tries to tell the truth about the inefficacy of masks or alternatives to vaccines or questions anything the state guild state as absolute truths may not be questioned. But the crazy thing is the truth is no defense. And this sort of thing was also being done on an ad hoc basis nationally during the pandemic with threatened firings, loss of privileges, if a doctor refused to mask or, more seriously, didn't try to force the mask upon his patients. So the California business has been held temporarily in abeyance by courts, but there is as yet no challenge to the principle underlying it, that to be allowed to practice medicine, one must obtain the state's permission and be anointed by a state-backed guild in order to do so. But he says it's exactly that principle that has to be rejected if doctors are ever again to be free to practice medicine as journalists in this country still are for now. But his point is, there is a very strong push right now to license journalists. That's what Dr. Goebbels did in uh, Germany. That's what Stalin did in Soviet Russia. Controlling journalism in the same way that medicine is now controlled. Can you imagine the consequences of that? including for medicine, if journalists were to be licensed by the state and or the practice of their profession made conditional upon the permission of to do so of a state-enforced guild of some kind, accepting, it's, it's doubtful, he says, accepting anyone who'd been harmed by them would actually know the truth about anything, including the truth about drugs that were pushed on the populace by a medical system completely controlled by the same mechanisms. It's a good point. Mainstream journalism, he says, has become a kind of guild, the members of which no longer question authority, but rather cheerlead for it, often deliberately avoiding anything that calls it into question. As, for example, the recent revelations on video of a senior Pfizer drug pusher openly admitting alarming things about the company he works for. These revelations, this video, ought to have been all over the mainstream news, but instead it's ignored by most of us. That's exactly why... Mainstream journalists are no longer trusted. Journalists outside of the mainstream have been uh, have a growing rather than dwindling readership and viewership. Why? Because they're free to tell the truth. And the truth always finds an audience because the truth is essential to physical survival and psychological survival. So if young children are not told the truth about dangerous things that can cause them harm, guess what? Then they're much more likely to be harmed by dangerous things. And this is true for adults, too. So, when it comes to licensing, particularly if you hear, you know, calls that we need to license, you know, journalists in order to prevent misinformation, it's not to protect you. This is The Brian Hyde Show.